0: growing up i know that i love to sing and every opportunity i get to sing i sing i joined the nova scotia mass choir for the opportunity to sing because i found that as my project and my team and my band are were growing i'm actually singing less informally it's almost like every time i sing there's a big there, there's a big to do you know and so the simple joys of just harmonizing with a group of people for fun I wasn't getting a lot of that. And so I go there and I just sing harmonies with them and it's, it's wonderful. So I, I, I share that story with you Leah and, and your listeners to show that I love the music. All the other things are extra and I'm grateful for them all. But if, if I only had the opportunity to sing, I would just be singing nonetheless.
1: Jamila is a Jamaican born singer songwriter based in Halifax, Canada. In this episode, you'll hear about both her youth in the countryside of Jamaica singing gospel and then her immersion in reggae roots in Rastafarian culture in Kingston. Her father is the legendary Earl Chinna Smith, who's performed extensively with the Soul Syndicate, been featured on over 500 albums and also played with Bob Marley and the Wailers on the Rastaman Vibration album Live at the Roxy and the historic One Love Peace Concert of 1978. I met Jamila in her role as the Associate Artistic Director and Lead Singer of the Reggae Roots Program, which is available to all Canadian schools free of charge, created with Daniel Bartholomew Poyser and the National Arts Centre. If you missed my episode with Daniel in Season 2, you should have a listen. Jamila speaks so eloquently about being grounded in a strong sense of identity and purpose, her love of music, and communicating with a wide audience. And she has also generously shared two tracks from her album, Roots Girl, which are part of this episode. You can use the timestamps to navigate to any topics or musical selections. And you can listen to this on your favorite podcast player, watch the video on YouTube or read the transcript. Everything is linked with the show notes on my website, leahroseman.com. You may want to sign up for my newsletter to get access to exclusive sneak peeks for upcoming guests. Please also consider supporting this show with a tip. The link is also in the description. Hi, Jamila. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much,
0: Leah. It's my pleasure to be here with you.
1: Now, we met a rather a cool project, but before we get to that, I think we should get to that later, let's talk about your first album. At the time we released this, it'll be almost a year since you released Roots Girl, and I know you're going to um, be willing to share a couple of tracks from that. So do you want to talk about the process of making that recording?
0: Absolutely. Sure. Roots Girl being the first album, of course, I had a a lot of emotions around it. You know, a, a, a lot of anxiety leading up to its release and the pandemic came and kind of Broke an interrupted or strategy for want of a better word, so our, our team had to pivot quite a bunch of times to make sure we got it out there. and so I'm really just proud of us all you know, my band and all the producers and everyone who contributed to making the album despite all of the limitations we had. And so Roots Girl to me not only represents me growing roots in my new home here in East Coast Canada, but it's also um, a testament to our will and resilience as we um, we fought really hard to get it out, given the circumstances.
1: (laughs) And you actually toured with your band to Jamaica before you recorded the album? we did. So
0: in 2020, um, February of 2020, we went to Jamaica with the intention of recording a a huge bit of the album. So we came back with some tracks, some live off the floor recordings, and we had a plan to use the next three months to kind of wrap it together. And three months became two years. (laughs) But we we got it done and, and super amazing. You know, the way that things unfolded I don't believe that it could have gone any better, Leah, because during that time that I thought it was an interruption, our team had an opportunity to collaborate with Symphony Nova Scotia as they too were pivoting through the pandemic. And so they had virtual programming. And so begins my journey into the wonderful world of orchestral music so I'm really grateful. Maybe if I was super hyper-focused on the album, there would have been no room to invite that beautiful opportunity into our lives.
1: And I I really like to include some music towards the beginning of an episode so that people who haven't heard you sing can hear your voice before we talk too much more about your story. I thought it would be really cool to include the track that you created with your dad, who's A super famous uh, reggae musician, Earl Chinna Smith, who's recorded over 500 albums.
0: (laughs) Yes, I'm really proud of him. He's given me some really big shoes to fill there, but he continues to be a sounding board for me, a source of inspiration and someone I can always call on when I need either encouragement or a bit of support. I involved him in this first track because my exposure to a lot of the culture, especially the music of Jamaica, and also Rastafarian culture was through him. And so starting off the album with, uh, we call it a groundation, with with the drums playing and the chanting, is very representative of the way that Rastafarians hold space for each other and how they ground themselves. And I, be, I be, believed at the time that that would have been a great energy to start off the music on the album. So, And with my dad, it just adds another layer of special meaning to it for me.
1: So, so. he co-wrote that with you and, and helped produce it. Is that his voice we hear a little bit?
0: Yes, yeah, so he's also singing as well, but he has a, a team of chanters mm-hmm. and drummers that he collaborates with. He calls them the Bingistra because <laughs> they play Naya Bingi drums, and then um, he has a team of them, and so it's a collective effort.
1: Wonderful. Is there anything more you want to share about that that song?
0: I'll I'll start off by saying that it's Naya Bingi drumming. And Nyabingi drumming is reverent in Rastafarian practice and culture. And it's a really big part of reggae music and Jamaican culture as well. Not the most popular parts of it, but I do believe it holds a lot of significance.
1: And that name, she was a like a, a sort of a goddess, an African goddess? Yes,
0: Nyabingi was a West African mm-hmm. goddess. And so this practice, I can't say for sure how it became... It came to have the same name. However, I, I do know that it's a very powerful Rastafarian practice that brings the community together and they sing, they play drums, and they hold space for each mm-hmm. other.
1: You are about to hear the track Naya Bingy Groundings from the album Roots Girl, produced and composed by Earl Chinna-Smith and Jamila.
0: Holy Emmanuel I, Selassie I the I. I and I give thanks for life, you know? I and I give thanks for love. Well, I and I give thanks for music. Cause through the music, Mosai. I and I can be an instrument of light. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my spirit be awful and true in a distant time and forevermore.
2: Roots,
0: for roots,
2: sing together, children.
1: preparation for this. Actually, I watched the incredible um, Bob Marley biopic on Netflix called Marley. Have you happened to have seen that?
0: I have. It's very nostalgic watching that because some of those same spaces are spaces that I grew up. And not until I was in my late teens did I understand the significance, the really big significance that those spaces hold, but they all they're all still in Jamaica places that I've traversed, and I learn more and more about them every day. Mm.
1: So when you grew up in the countryside, it was a different um, cultural mix with like gospel singing. Do you want to speak a little bit to that early childhood?
0: Absolutely. So my mother and my father um, separated when I was very young, and my mother moved back to the countryside of Jamaica. And on that side of my family, we're all like academics and school teachers, and we're very entrenched in Christian culture, and so it's quite a stark difference from the rebel nature of the Rastafarian culture that my dad's life kind of revolves around, Um, but I think both of them have influenced me equally to become the woman I am today. Um, I believe that I learned a lot from my, my time in church, from my grandmother and my exposure to Christianity. And and even, you know, something as simple as being able to go on stage and, and be confident sharing my music is something that was honed in church. But understanding the cultural relevance of some of the music and practices, um, I think I got that from my dad.
1: And from a musical perspective, um, singing in gospel choir, is any of that harmonization related to background singing in the bands you sang in?
0: Absolutely. When I sang in church choirs, that's how I, my brain connected, you know, harmonies and melodies. That, that was my first exposure to music at a certain level and the first opportunity for me to practice it, you know. <laughs> so that's where I, I, I developed it but it it can be said that it, it lived in me naturally it was inherent because my dad has nine kids and six of us sing professionally and they don't all have Christian exposure <laughs> so <laughs> I want to say that there's a part of it that is also um, inherent and lives in me um, even before it, it was molded by church and choirs and um, and group singing, you know.
1: <laughs> and I've, I haven't been to Jamaica yet. I'd love to go someday. The part that you spent your early childhood in, what was it like? Like what region for people that, have, that know the country?
0: Of course. So I grew up in Brownstown, St. Anne. So if anyone has been to Ocho Rios, you can go up into the mountains of Mount Diablo. And that's where I grew up. Um, I grew up in a very, very humble beginnings with my grandmother who was a school teacher and um she was the one of the main elders in my community and really i I had a goat and lived next door to the butcher my milk was delivered you know things like that we didn't have running water at the altitudes that we were at so every house had tanks and water catchment systems and and it was a very simpler way of living so i think that has also influenced the way that I look at life.
1: <laughs> in what way do you think?
0: Well, you know, I I know that my drive and industry, so I, I I try not to be afraid of hard work. Whenever it is I have something in front of me to do, I remind myself how much harder it used to mm-hmm. be when I was growing up. So I find that I... I am more open and grateful for my blessings, and I'm not intimidated from hard work. Or, and I, and also too, I, I appreciate the simple things in life, and I try to make make do with what I have.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Now, another thing I, I was doing to prepare, because I, in that uh, documentary, um, a lot of people were speaking Patois, and it was such, such a beautiful language, and I think a lot of English speakers don't realize i don't know if you think it's sort of a racist thing but people think it's like not good english rather than realizing it's a creole it's a combination of different languages so the enslaved people they from what i understand they weren't able to speak uh they were kept separate from people from their region so they couldn't communicate very easily right and there's a lot of uh, words and grammar from different west african languages in patois and i'm curious in jamaica like. I'm sure standard English is kind of t- connected with social mobility, but is there like an attitude towards people, like, you know, the way they speak? That's such
0: a great question, and you're touching on so much. I'm going to start off from Patois and its structure. Yeah. So it is indeed has structure like a language. It it has um, ways of being conjugated, and it has patterns, and um, Yeah, it has enough structure to be called a language, and and yes, you are correct that people's social standing kind of determine, um, not really, it doesn't determine, but it, it reflects the way people speak kind of reflects their exposure, the level of education they may have. And by extension their their economic standing as well, and so there are three levels of patois that I studied in communication studies in in, in high school. Mm-hmm. but you have the baselectal patois, which is you can barely understand it myself. I will have to listen very intently because it's just so so raw that you you have to well, me growing up in the countryside will understand it, but it still requires me to focus. And selectal, is kind of what we all speak when we're just speaking every day. And then you have acrolectal patois, which is like, um, you could understand it, Leah. It's almost like what they would put in ads mm. just to add a little bit of culture in there. And you'll find a lot of um, richer folk or more education, educated people um, use a softer, kind of of patois and so you're absolutely correct that there are these stigmas that go along with the way you speak. I'm grateful that I'm I'm able to, I don't want to even call it code switching because the aim is to be understood, but rest assured that if I were talking to my mom, you might not be able to understand me. Yeah. (laughs) Yes.
1: Now you had mentioned your siblings who are musicians. I believe one of your sisters gave you a huge opportunity when you were, what, 21?
0: (laughs) 21 years old. So I was working at a telephone company doing like HR or something. I was... I had just turned 21. And so she was the backing vocalist for the Whalers. She used to be the backing vocalist for Shaggy and she had the opportunity to do this job. And she was working with the Whalers for three years. And then she called me one day, she said, you know, the next lady I sing with has to go on maternity leave. And after lots of discussions, we've decided that you are the person that should come. I told them that no one else sings and harmonizes with me as like you do. So, at twenty-one, off I went on tour. The first seven-week tour I had gone to, um, we landed in Atlanta for our first date, and it was the first time I had written, I like, wrote an autograph for someone. And I came back a changed woman. I I don't know if I was ever able to readjust into my day job again.
1: Now, I believe you didn't tell your dad that you were going on this.
0: I did not tell him at all because so one of the things that has always irked him because he believes so much in our talent and he believes so much in, or you know, the value we have to share in the world, in the world through our creativity, that he never always wanted us to be supporting vocalists for other projects. He always was excited about seeing us do our own thing. And I can't tell you how proud he's told me he is of Roots Girl and, and the steps I've been taking with the Reggae Roots program, etc. But at this time, he wasn't happy. So I went without telling him. And so I'm in at the Hollywood Bowl in California, and one of his friends, so you have to remember, he's traversed all these places. There's not a single place I've gone where someone didn't say, I've met your dad before. So they come and they're like, guess who I'm talking to on the phone? <laughs> it's your dad and he's like so hmm." (laughs) I hear you're on tour and I said yes um how's it going are you safe and he's like let me talk to family man that's Aston Barrett the you know big bass player played with Bob Marley and I don't know what instructions were shared but all I know is that for the rest of the tour he's like you come sit with me (laughs) make sure you're with me all the time Make sure that you have everything you need. And there was just an extra layer of care that I, I received during that tour. So um, he wasn't super mad, but I felt safe knowing that he cared enough about us to um, to have those thoughts and to want to protect us from, you know, it can be hard on the road. Um, and so it was really good to see him taking that care for us. And that one tour became several dozen tours over the next <laughs> four years. <laughs> Did you tour in Europe at all? I love touring in Europe. My favorite places in Europe to tour are France and Switzerland. France, because France, the French really love reggae music. It's quite surprising to see the overwhelming reaction. Despite the language barriers, despite the cultural differences, I do find the French um, especially the French in France specifically, to be really big um, consumers of reggae music and big reggae enthusiasts. Also Germany as well. But my experience, personal experience in France has been very, um, very enjoyable. Another thing, Switzerland, I love Switzerland because it was the first country that I've been to outside of Jamaica where I saw my picture on the streets, like Jamila is headlining a festival before I even had an album and people came out and they were very gracious and um, and responded very well to my presentation. So I'll always have Switzerland in a really special place in my heart for having given me that opportunity.
1: Here's an excerpt from the title track of Jamila's album Roots Girl. The entire song is also included as a bonus track linked to this episode.
0: Message for you. The real empress dem the de warriors too. Panama sweatshirt dripped on me, bro. Unworn to Zion, Jah Jah children say no. Reggae music are the key to the soul. We reorganize all the system ago. Roots girls can't keep. Roots girls can't keep reggae. Some system cranking real reggae shuffle in. Say. Hi,
1: just a quick break from the episode. I'm an independent podcaster and I really do need my listeners' help. Please consider buying me a coffee. The link to my Kofi page is in the description. Hi, I understand that when, you know, back in the 70s, the reggae was actually had this huge in the States. It was a lot of white audiences, but not black audiences. I hope that's changed over time. It's more diverse.
0: That's such an interesting question, Leah. From my understanding, and this is just my understanding that there was a movement happening in the states, especially in like um, Northern California, where um you'd have like the the rainbow movement, the hippie movement, and th- those those concepts were really aligned with the concepts coming out of reggae music the belief systems and the culture at that time, whether it's um, peace and love, brotherhood, living closer to the earth. And so there was easily an an easy crossover there. Um, It should also be noted that reggae was not openly accepted by the Jamaican bourgeoisie um, at the time because it was looked at as as rebel music. So the name reggae, the, the coined term reggae, was coined by Toots Hibbert. And I don't know if you've heard the term ragamuffin. Yes. So Toots did an interview where he answered an, uh, an interviewer asking, where did the name come from? How did you coin that great name? And he's like, it sounds like raga music, you know, the music that all the ragamuffins make. And so it's raga raga, so I call it reggae. <laughs> and of course, because, you know, you look at a Rastaman and you listen to... Um, the type of music and it did not sound like the North American hit songs of the time, the temptations, the, you know what I mean? It sounded a little heavier with that heavy bass drum. The subject matters were more, were more speaking towards social advocacy and social justice. And I think it was a, it was a way for um, Jamaicans who didn't have a lot of opportunity to really pour their creativity in and, and free their spirit through this type of music. So, yeah, I, I love that question. And I, I really think that is the connection there. It's, it's rebel music. And so it's not openly accepted by those you know, in high standing. It, it had to actually gain its recognition outside of Jamaica before the arms of Jamaica opened to embrace it.
1: But in terms of like the African-American community in the United States, so, yeah, yes, when you play concerts there, would it be like a mixed crowd?
0: Yes, actually, um, whenever we played in. So the United States is such a big place and I've toured there. So you find like in the East Coast, for example, New York, Connecticut, that so whenever I play shows there, I see a lot more black audiences. But whenever I'm in like Northern California Or, you know, Montana or, you know, (laughs) you're going to find a lot more, um, a lot more audiences that embrace these sorts of um, concepts like one love, Mm -hmm. you know, living back to the, you know, closer to the earth, living in a more natural way. People who are open to those kinds of lifestyles are the persons who I find gravitate to reggae music.
1: Yeah, I was curious about it because it came up in that documentary that it bothered Bob Marley that he'd look out and he wouldn't see um, people of African descent because of the whole pan Africanism is so important to reggae. And th- that's why I was, yes. I was curious about that.
0: I would love to add as well, if that's okay, that even today, the Jamaicans or the, my generation, because I'm a millennial. And even those younger than myself are gravitating to different types of Jamaican music, like subgenres like dancehall music, for example, which is huge all over the world at this time. But it's certainly not the same kind of reggae music that I'm advocating for, which is roots reggae. Um, so this dancehall music is—it's a little more showy. Uh, the, the, the contents and the subject matters are a little more sexual, and you know, and it comes with a sort of entertainment style and branding that um, I don't really find is ideal for me. <laughs> but people love it um, just the same, and I do believe that these forms of subgenres can coexist. What I fear for is that roots reggae gets lost, you know, as the time progresses, and and so that's why I've made a commitment. To, to maintaining this kind of music in my creativity and also to cl- keep it clean in a way where it can be consumed by all.
1: Now we skipped over um, how we met, so it'll be interesting to get back to that. <clears throat> sure. So when I first met you, it was actually the height of the pandemic. And I-, I believe you did one concert with the NAC orchestra and then you returned to do this big recording.
0: Yes, Reggae Roots. So a good friend of mine, Daniel Bartholomew Poyser, who I met through Symphony Nova Scotia, gave me a call one day and he was like, would you be open to doing some work with the orchestras outside of Nova Scotia? And I hadn't, I hadn't imagined that and that opportunity would ever present itself. But I, So I asked him, do you think I'm ready? And he said, yes, I've worked with you with Symphony Nova Scotia, and it doesn't really get much harder than this. If you could have done that, then I have all the faith in the world in you. The next call I received was from an NAC representative who asked me if I would be interested in doing a virtual educational program as a part of their educational offerings because they too have pivoted from a lot of live presentations to doing more virtual programming. Um, We had only three months to make it happen and so um, I was very nervous that, because I'd never done anything of that magnitude before. Long story short is, I was on a plane going to Ottawa um, with my team to record these songs. And um, and so it became the Reggae Roots. And Reggae Roots is actually a virtual educational program cons- consisting of six modules that introduces youth to reggae music, the foundational concepts of reggae music. Um, it is... It comes along with a pedagogical guide that outlines activities, and it's available to all Canadian students, free of cost, from grades four to grades eight is the ideal target audience for this program. And I am beyond, beyond grateful and proud to have been involved in this because the feedback to this program has been overwhelming, even today. So, yes, the NAC, I'm so grateful. And that's how I met you as well, Leah, in that first recording. Um, If anything, that first um, recording and that first experience emboldened me with a lot of confidence. Because since then, I have touched that stage again and several others in Canada. And I want to say that it all kind of started there the level of confidence and the belief that I, I could, because, you know, it showed me that I could, I did. And so when I had to do it again, I went towards it with even more more enthusiasm, more confidence and more certainty of myself and my team. So that's that's how I met you. And, <laughs> and Reggae Roots is now a big part of my offering.
1: So I interviewed Daniel Bartholomew Poyser. I can't remember the date, but it was... When I interviewed him, we had recorded Reggae Roots and they hadn't yet announced it. So I remember I had to ask permission to release my episode and it it was coordinated with when they were going to be releasing the first press releases about it. So if people haven't heard that uh, episode with him, he's a really interesting guy and be interesting to hear. And we did talk about that a little bit. But when I I rewatched, well, I hadn't actually seen the video. So so you shared them with me and I was able to see what the kids are seeing and and see all the wonderful um, modules they have it's it's really cool and exercises to try about their feelings and all kinds of cool stuff but i saw the orchestra and we were so far apart from each other and we're all wearing masks and it just brought me back to that time and i thought how strange it must have been for you you must have been scared of getting sick and you know you're out there yes
0: there was a lot of feelings there was that um we were all we all had to get tested every day before coming into the hall into south amal and and The strangeness, Leah, of of us all playing to an empty Southam Hall. You know what I mean? Because one thing about performances is that as a performer, I feed off the reaction of the audience. And so the reaction of the audience could very well determine how the show goes. But having to actually find that energy from the inside, there's no... There's no back and forth, there's no energy exchange, it's just you and the orchestra. Um, I remember also everyone wearing in-ears and how long it took us <laughs> to get that <laughs> to get that done. But as I said before, having gone through that experience taught me that that's it, that's as h- hard as it gets, Leah. You know, it can't get
1: any harder. And then when you came back and you did these marvellous evening shows for you know adults and people of all ages and the energy in the hall the hall was packed especially that last night you really got the crowd going and they were all on their feet and it was really really memorable and you sounded amazing and your your charisma to have experienced that live I was really felt very privileged it was a really great thank you thank you very
0: much (laughs) it felt really good for us as well and my
1: colleagues and I backstage you know people were talking about she could do it you know, so many different things with orchestras—really cool, like tribute concerts to all these different kind of artists. And then I found out afterwards you have done a Nina Simone tribute with Symphony Nova Scotia. Are there? Do you have kind of a wish list for maybe other artists that would be really cool to do a tribute concert to in, in that kind of setting with orchestra? oh that's such
0: a great question so nina simone for sure i actually i thought that was a lofty undertaking <laughs> but but we did it um and i would love to continue doing that repertoire for as long as i am i'm allowed to and and it's okay for me to do that but just right now tina turner you know um one that just like rings right off the top it was a a massive loss Mm. for the music industry this year um aretha franklin is one that i would love to to dig into as well and and taking it home to jamaica there are two um reggae art female reggae artists that i have a lot of respect for one of them being miss judy moat who i do one of her songs in our reggae roots program and phyllis Dillon, who's another incredible singer from Jamaica, um, from the, Phyllis Dillon has passed now, Miss Judy Moat is still alive, but I would love to honor those two Jamaican artists.
1: Now, Judy Moat, she was part of the I3, the, the background singers with the Wailers. So, that's correct. yeah, and, and they went on to make some albums themselves, right? Like the three women.
0: Well, yes, they did. Um, together and individually, Judy Mowatt, as a matter of fact, was the first woman to receive a Grammy nomination for reggae music. And the song Black Woman, that is a part of Reggae Roots, is on that piece of work. So I'm and just to know that I can give her a call, Leah, you know, it's a blessing. And yeah, I want to immortalize these relationships in some way, shape, or form. I feel so blessed to it's like a a big part of my culture and history and and to be able to reach out and be able to touch it i consider that a blessing
1: now you sister nancy comes up in um that program as well have you met her or talked to her i have not met
0: sister nancy personally my dad has um and I know a lot of people, she seems to be just one degree of separation away. I have messaged with Sister Nancy personally and and she knows who I am and she knows about this incredible Reggae Roots program that we're doing. But Sister Nancy, if you're watching this, I would love to share space and time with you one day. You I, I was,
1: because I was looking her up and seeing how she'd rebooted her performance career after retiring from a, a bank job. And she, li- I think she lives in New Jersey or something. So I was thinking, yeah, they should get on stage together. That would be really cool.
0: <laughs> I really wish that would happen. Um, fingers <laughs> crossed, Leah, we, we may be planting a seed here.
1: <laughs> well, let's um, go back to your album. The other tune. Well, I think we talked about sharing um, Irie Meditation. Yes. And so that was a collaboration. Um, do you want to talk about that?
0: Yes, I would love to talk about it. Iron Meditation is a collaboration in several different ways. When I came to Halifax, Nova Scotia, as an immigrant, you know, not quite sure what communities will open their arms to you, where your your friends will come from. But there was a band, Dub Cartel, and they were doing reggae music slash dance hall, you know, a little bit of fusion. And they invited me on their stages. They were like, come, come, here's your mic and I didn't always know how I would fit in, but I tried and it worked out. They broke up because some of their members moved away, but they left me with the the skeleton of that song, Ira Meditation, which I first started to perform on their stage with them. They would give me that slot. And so um, two of their members became members of my own personal band. And so when this album came about, we decided to include this song as a sort of homage to those early days when i came and those were the guys who opened their arms to me and kind of opened up the music scene to me by extension and so tachichi now is another collaboration tachichi has been in the music scene in halifax for decades as an incredibly respected rapper and earlier um, before my album was released, Tachichi included me in the title track of his previous album that he was nominated for an ECMA award for. Hashtag BLM. And so I decided to include him, to give him that same courtesy, because that's a big deal, you know, for someone to value your talent enough to include you in their title track of their album. I I was very floored and and grateful for that. And so I I returned that sentiment and he did an incredible great verse, rap verse, the only rap verse and also the only collaboration from inside here in Halifax. So I'm really grateful for that. And Ira Meditation just reminds us to to take it easy, you know, (laughs) chill out.
2: It's whacking though, can not underestimate the passion though no. Got the ears in my pocket, no room for the racks to go. This is smash and go, got a candle, get it lit now. Positive vibrations through a song, this is it now
0: and silver and gold half of the story has never been told work from a young and then you rest when you're old focus and reach for your goals watch what you do the things that you say the house on the hill will never decay no see roots and think them cliche watch your red a boxing way no matter what the situation stand firm and all our iron vibration no mix up in the confusion Show them some love. of the solution, no matter what the situation. Just hold our higher vibration, no mix up in that the frustration. Show them the love.
1: Okay, you, you posted something on social media. I'm not sure if you're willing to talk about it. So you have a... Of course. I know you're, you're planning your second album. I don't know if you've started recording yet. So, so there's a tune, So Good, I think it is.
0: Thanks for that question, Leah. I just want to start off by saying I've never felt so supported in my artistic journey as I am today, thanks to Canada Council, Factor, and my team who are working with me to, to secure... these kinds of supports as we're learning each day. And so now I'm going to work on this new album and I can actually do it strategically, not feeling like I'm lacking anything, not feeling like I'm putting all of my own you know, life into it that I, I'll die at the end of it. Anyway, <laughs> long story short is we've started recording um, the next album that is tentatively titled Woman of the Sun. will have 11 tracks and we have 10 of these bed tracks already ready to go. Um, so Good Though was a part of another Canada Council project done by my friend James Shaw. And James Shaw puts together these big bands and then he's collaborating with artists in the community to write original songs with this big band. So we started so good about three months ago, and when we sat for our first writing session, I've I've been recently separated from my husband about two years now, and so I'm starting to date again. And of course, it's it's changed, Leah. <laughs> it's it's changed, and I, I I had one bad experience that reminded me that I might not quite. I might not be ready for the current cl- dating climate, <laughs> but it really, it really, um, it really bothered me. And for the first time in my adult life, I was able to watch myself sink into these feelings and, and analyze myself as I was navigating it. Because before that, I was married for seven years and I was in a much different space. But I feel like as, as a, 30-something-year-old woman, I'm able to look at it very objectively and look at what am I feeling, how is this, and being honest about it as well, and so good was my way of working through this bad experience, and um, and so I'm really grateful that I'll be able to sing this song forever. Um, the song is not yet released, but will be released, the video recording of our live performance at the Halifax Jazz Festival. And then we're going to release the actual single a few months later. So
1: look out for that. I'll send it to you first. <laughs> Thank you. I was um, thinking about, you know, processing emotion. And I know you write your lyrics. Are you like a journal keeper? How do you deal with emotions on a daily basis?
0: I am a journal keeper. I started keeping a journal after my separation from my um, my previous partner and I really find that it helps me. I do what's called morning pages, which is a practice I found online. So I wake up in the morning and before I surround myself with anything else, I start to just pour out my thoughts, pour out my energy, whatever is on my mind. I just write it out on the page. And it's quite interesting to go back and read through them and see what comes out. It's very surprising and revealing too. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. I started journaling... I mean, I guess I'd written a little bit as a teenager, but really not since then. I think shortly after my 50th birthday. So, you know, almost five years ago for me. And so it predated the pandemic. And then it was such an incredible tool when we were going through all this uncertainty. And it is so therapeutic to read back. And, you know, we were talking before about gratitude. It really, to appreciate as a performer now to play to full hall. And remember we were playing to empty hall and making recordings, it's, yeah.
0: I have a a, a a collaborator, Jenny, and she is does a lot of administration for my team and my band. And to start off our day, Jenny and I do a gratitude session where we do three things we're grateful for today. And we kind of start off our work day like that quite consistently, and it really changes the tone of our days. And it's funny because when we don't do it, we notice.
1: Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about Rastafarian uh, culture and not really too much about the spirituality. I wanted to ask about your hair because it, we, when you take a vow to, to grow your locks, I mean, it's not a fashion. It's a deep spiritual practice, correct? It is. It is definitely. It's actually
0: goes back to the book of Leviticus in, um, in the Bible. And so persons who have grown their hair and have taken, they've taken what's called the Nazarene vow. And it's explained in Leviticus and it kind of, it kind of determines like, or outlines for want of a better word, the the right diet, the right um, way to carry yourself. You cut your hair, the you know, the way that you treat your neighbor. It's a it's a, it's a vow that you've taken to live in this way that's supposed to make you a, a little purer, you know? And, um, and so I have actually since cut my hair so I've I, it signals that I'm not, I'm no longer applying or abiding by the Nazarene vow, and I've done that kind of as a purge. I want to start again from scratch, and take that step again. And I find it's it's another thing that I find to be spiritually fulfilling for me to kind of do that purge every ever so often. So my first bit of locks, I would have had it for eight mm-hmm. years. And then I cut it during the pandemic and now here starts the next, (laughs) the next cycle of it. Okay.
1: So are those extensions? The ones
0: you're looking at now are definitely extensions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, However, it's, it's something serious and I wouldn't want, so that's one of the things. There's a difference between persons, not everyone who wears dreads is a Rastafarian person. And not everyone who is a Rastafarian has mm-hmm. dreads um, and they could be going through these cycles as well. I, I want to be true and honest with myself. And to be honest, Leah, I have not been able to maintain the same level of dedication to the practices of Rastafarianism since I've been living in Canada and one of the things is because I haven't been able to find a Rastafarian community here in the East Coast. When I'm in Jamaica, like I went to Jamaica, um, I don't want to date this, but I just went mm-hmm. to Jamaica a few days ago for some recording. And it was incredible how I could sit in with the elders and have these conversations that are deeper about my spirituality and about my practice that no one in Canada would ask me about on a day to day basis. and it's there, these are self searching things, you know, and so I haven't been able to practice at that level. And, um, and so that's something I aspire towards. Because whenever it is that I am fully focused on the practices of Rastafarian culture, I find that I am healthier. I am happier. My ego is just about dead. And so I'm, I'm open. And it's, it really is a whole the way that I I feel mm-hmm. it. It's much deeper. I'm reading more, you know, It really brings about positive changes in the way that I show up in the world.
1: And when you really uh, became involved with that, you were a teenager In were you in boarding school at the time, like still in high school?
0: No, actually, I knew about it. And as, as a matter of fact, I had my own grouses and stigma attached to mm-hmm. it because I didn't understand it as fully as I did. Um, when I went to university and so I was hanging out with my dad more freely because all right so I'll give you an idea of the geography my mother lives in the countryside in the mountains and my dad lives in the metropolitan center of Kingston and so when I left it's like um, you know students will leave the countryside to go to university and so what happened was I was no longer around my mother's family's influence i was mostly around my father's influences because whenever i wanted to be home that would be that would be my home (laughs) and so i learned more about about the practice and about the culture and and really put to bed a lot of those stigma that i had coming from the church background where they would look at rastafarian culture and think that it's um you know it's trivial or it's uninformed, or it's, um, it's just weed smoking, that's all it is, you know, just little things like that. And then you realize these are some brilliant folks <laughs> who who are doing incredible things in the world, and, um, and who are well read and, and, and who, who value themselves enough to take these decisions to treat themselves and their bodies and their minds in a different way. And so and they're not perfect because they I, I do struggle with some of the belief systems, um, some of them that might be patriarchal or homophobic or these are things that um, are are big issues. But um, I cannot say that I have not extracted positive things from my exposure.
1: to. Yeah. It. no, I was going to ask actually that about that, like the treatment of women. And I didn't know about the homophobia. so like jamaica would you say it's a fairly male-dominated culture to begin with or like yes. like most of the world <laughs> like canada
0: <laughs> yes it is um it is and and even more so i think um it's funny because there's a dichotomy and there's so there's an irony not a dichotomy more of an irony and i'll tell you why the jamaican household is run by the woman it, it's 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 matriarchal in every sense of the world word, except for the fact that those insidious male or patriarchal things will still rise up, but it's the woman that's the head of the household. I see that over and over again there's a stronger voice in the home, but yet still there's the saying in Jamaica for women they say you play fool to catch wise you play fool to catch wise so it's almost like you know you have the power but you don't you don't uh, you don't need to shout it out from the mm-hmm. <laughs> from the top of the steeple <laughs> you just kind of quietly use it but um yeah i do believe that jamaica at its heart at its core is matriarchal but the those patriarchal trends like all over the world are still evident
1: So we talked about, you know, this virtual program going out to schools. Now, I I heard in another interview um, that you did a while back about your first uh, live performance for a high school. And I was really touched that you requested if you could have a T-shirt for that high school when you went up in front of the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Leah, the kids
0: are the most honest people ever. And if they don't like you, they are not shy to tell you that they don't like you. And so one of the things, so one of the things going into this was okay i'm not a trained teacher i love kids and that has been a thing a theme in my life for all my life i love kids but i had never engaged them at this level before and so you always worry will they like me because if they don't they're going to be honest about it so going to play at the prince andrews high school they've since changed their name um, in dartmouth nova scotia I went to the, the organizers of the event and I said, okay, what are these kids like? <laughs> and they, they were like, well, you're going to get a wide cross-section, everyone from like five to high school. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that doesn't help because, you know, that's a big, it's a big range of ages. And so I asked, who is your star singer in the school? Maybe they can come up and sing something with me star singer wasn't at school oh. that day they a name came up they were like i can't recall the name off the top of my head but you know they were like yes yeah, so-and-so would be would love to do it but they're not here today so i was like okay how am i gonna connect with these kids i was like do you have a school shirt and they were like yeah we do and so they they ran back and got me a shirt it was tight <laughs> I put it on and they when i came up i put a jacket on and then i kind of like did did the whole james brown and they started screaming and i was like yeah i got him (laughs) but the the kids have been so gracious they've been so attentive listening to the modules listening to the stories Around the modules, sharing their experiences with music, sharing with me their favorite reggae songs, you know, playing the one drop with me on their whether it's on their leg or on the desk. Um, I sometimes bring shakers for them as well. It's been what an experience. Leah, I had two thousand odd kids sing me happy birthday at the Roy Thompson Hall in April. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think I found my calling. um any opportunity to continue working with kids, I'm going to take it.
1: Well, Daniel Bartholomew Poyser has his connections in the States. Maybe uh, you'll be doing some concerts down there.
0: Fingers crossed. um, We have spoken about this um, and we're working towards manifesting
1: that. I'm sure it'll happen. You know, one thing we didn't talk about that it came up in the Reggae Roots, which I found interesting was um, the origins of rap, which is such a huge you know, music genre. So DJ Cool Herc, this guy in the Bronx, came from Jamaica, and this history of toasting that was, was this part of like the dance hall culture?
0: Yes, yeah, sound system culture specifically. So you remember, reggae music wasn't really being played on the radios. It was, it was the trending music, the the North American soul music that kind of dominated the airwaves of Jamaica and And so if you weren't making the music, they weren't really being played. Sound system culture became a big thing. My grandfather actually had a sound system. My father's dad, Noel, had a sound system. And there are other iconic sound systems in Jamaica, King Jammies. And these were the persons and, and the systems were, the distribution systems for reggae music at the time where they would set up stacks of speakers in the streets and th- those were the parties where people could hear this kind of music. So DJ Cool her brought this toasting. So the toasting would be the music is playing and they they would say something like, um, yeah, you know, let's dance in the party. And like, you know, they're they're doing all these kinds of like, Encouraging words around the music or, you know, telling you who the artist is or telling you what you might do, how to dance. (laughs) And so this whole practice became known as toasting. And we have some incredible toasters. You know, we're talking about legends like U-Roy, you know, master toasters. And they would go around and toast for all the sound systems because they're so well-liked that they are an art by themselves. DJ Kool Herc brought that practice to New York and that act of toasting became like what became like the DJ for rap, you know, and and, and toasting, the actual of speaking became the rap. And so that's kind of the birth of hip hop right there. And of course, there are several other factors which must have contributed to the ev- evolution of rap and hip hop. But certainly that part was one of the seeds that um, birthed it for sure.
1: So when you said your your um, grandfather was a sound system owner, I'm kind of curious, where would people store all these speakers and like just the logistics? How did that even work? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. It, I wish you, so I wish you would come to Jamaica one day. If anyone listening here has ever been to the Dub Club in Jamaica or, um, you know, they have so many sound system Sundays. They're just all these places in Jamaica where you can go and you'll see... A man's whole livelihood is his sound his sound system speakers. He'll spend all the time tuning it. It will live in his home. And then every, every every Sunday evening or so, he'll set it up in the corner of the streets and blast it down the street. And then you'll have a section of it called the early dance where they're playing more lovers rock. And then, you know, the vibes picks up <laughs> as the night progresses. But it's a lifestyle, Leah. And people, their entire lives are... Um, center their entire lives around this kind of thing and so yeah where do they store it in their homes most of the times you know dub club uh, a a party that happens even today my friend Gabriel selassie has a speaker set up permanently in his yard and every sunday night hundreds of people he opens his gates and hundreds of people go there to see this show and to listen to the music from the big stacks of speakers from all over the world
1: Wow, it's really unique to Jamaica, isn't it?
0: It is. However, I have to mention how the Japanese and the Chinese have taken it up. They love it too. I think right now, in this time, the second biggest sound system culture comes out of Japan and China because they love it so much. My dad had a record shop and he sold to so many Japanese all the records for their sound systems.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's really interesting. And in terms of, um, you know, promoting music and um, I was just thinking what you're saying that you wanted to stick to the the reggae roots and sort of more um, like less sexualized, you know, lyrics and presentation as a woman performer. Do you feel pressure from the industry to do things a certain way or are you just able to do your thing?
0: Such a great question. I used to feel pressure. I used to feel pressure. And to be honest, even sometimes now I do, too because the question is okay if you're if I'm going to be a full-time artist you want to sell records and so you look at the trends of what's popular and the music that I do is not what is popular but what I've noticed Leah is that I've cornered a niche market of people that I think are underrepresented listeners and consumers of music and whereas the mushy middle is what I call them they all love the they not they not all but I find that um a large cross-section of the population loves pop music and popular like soul dance dancehall hip-hop country pop music that are on the airwaves on the radio. I appeal through reggae roots to the younger demographics of people who don't have a place that doesn't sell beer to go and consume music. And so that is what qualifies me to do a project like Reggae Roots and I see 8,000 kids in three days because those kids don't have a place consistently where they can consume live music in this way, you know? And so I'm really grateful for that audience and I want to continue to strategize for a way to keep their attention so I can give to them and that they can give to me as well. Um, Another um, corner of the market that I think benefits from the type of music that I'm sharing and the way I'm sharing it is the older demographic and I want to say 45 and above who a lot of them especially um, the much older folk are not always comfortable with late night shows going out to a bar where it's super loud or you know and so my matinee shows my orchestral presentations appeal to them more they understand the music. They like the live music. They love to hear the, it's not just, um, it's not just programmed beats and rhythms. They like real music. And so I'm going to continue working with those demographics. I would love to have all people listen to my music, but if I were left with this demographic of listeners, I would still be very content and happy because I think they're under um, underrepresented when people are planning parties, I feel like these these demographics are
1: often left Mm -hmm. behind. Yeah, really interesting. And I'm curious, like you have settled in Halifax for personal reasons, but it's interesting being in a smaller centre as a creative artist, do you think, like as opposed to being in Toronto or New York or a much bigger city? Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: I do. Um, Thank you for that question. I have never lived in a bigger city center, so I don't have much to compare it to. Um, Kingston is is really small, but it has a lot of influence and outreach as it relates to reggae music. And I found that in Kingston, for several reasons, you know, I was a a little fish in a big pond. I find here in Halifax, there's not a lot of reggae music here. And so I get... I get to share my culture in the way that I want without feeling like I need to compete with the the acts that are already there, you know? And so uh, you, you get a little bit more of my own authenticity. I love Halifax because when I came here, as I have described in my answers, they opened their the art scene specifically opened their arms to me, giving me opportunities like I have described to you, working with the orchestras, singing on all the stages. And, you know, I just opened for Shaggy at the Halifax Jazz Festival. Someone, someone around a table decided, hey, why not give Jamila that slot? You know, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so I'm grateful for that. And and as much as I represent Jamaica in the music that I am putting out, I'm also representing the care and support that I I receive here in Halifax, too. I do consider this uh, a propelling place to be for me, at least.
1: Okay. And when you were, um, you know, singing, enjoying singing growing up, did you aspire to be a performer?
0: No, I did not. I wanted to become an actuary.
1: (laughs) I don't even know what that is.
0: (laughs) It's like a math person who works with statistics. They usually support insurance companies calculating the risk factors of, you know, different, you know, probabilities like... It's a math-related field, and and so it tells a lot about me that I I love I love a good spreadsheet I love <laughs> I love working with numbers as much as I love to sing. Um, what I know that I I would growing up I know that I love to sing, and every opportunity I get to sing I sing. I joined the Nova Scotia Mass Choir for the opportunity to sing because I found that as as my project and my team and my band are, we're growing. I'm actually singing less informally. It's almost like every time I sing, there's a big, there's a big to do, you know? And so the simple joys of just harmonizing with a group of people for fun, I wasn't getting a lot of that. And so I joined the, the Nova, the Nova Scotia mass choir and I go, I was told the, the, um, I told the director, I said, I'm not interested in any lead parts and I may not be able to make all of your engagements, especially if they clash with my own, but would you permit me to sit in the back and sing? (laughs) And and so I go there, not every Wednesday, but I do go and and they all love me there and I just sing harmonies with them and it's it's wonderful. So I I, I share that story with you, Leah, and, and your listeners to show that it's not... I love the music. All the other things are extra, and I'm grateful for them all. But if, if I only had the opportunity to sing, I would just be singing nonetheless.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this today and for sharing your music as well.
0: Thank you so much, Leah. I had a great time chatting with you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for following the series on your favorite podcast player and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, all of which help find new listeners. I have lots more episodes coming in this season three with a fascinating diversity of musicians and their stories and music. Have a great week. Please consider buying me a coffee. The link to my Ko-fi page is in the description.